Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm your co-host, Christopher Hurtado, and with me is my co-host, Riley Risto. Hello! And our guest, Jeffrey Goddard. Hey there. Glad to be back. It's good to have you with me. Today we're going to talk about justice. And the reason we're talking about justice is our ideas about justice inform our ideas about the atonement. What I'd like to do first is to actually problematize the idea that we know what justice is, that we know what right and wrong are, that we know what good and bad is. The way I usually do this, I'll start by just distinguishing between good, bad, and right, wrong. Most people think of them as the same thing. So here's a thought experiment. Let's say I'm the kind of guy who likes to do the right thing. I really want to do the right thing. I need you guys to help me out. Riley, Jeff, help me out. I need to make a decision here. I've got some snake anti-venin. Should I take it or not? What's the right thing to do? So there's a situational ethics about the whole thing. Context matters. Situation matters. Yeah. So it turns out it's not that easy to say what is the right thing. It depends on what is good and what is bad. So right right and wrong and good and bad aren't the same thing because what is right or wrong depends on what is good and bad. Here's the thing. If I take snake anti-venin and I have not been bitten by a snake, it will kill me. That would be bad. I think we can agree that would be bad, ethically speaking, if I were to die. Because ultimately, your conversation about ethics is over if you're dead. It's a conversation for human beings, not human bins. So if I have been bitten by a snake, now it's going to save my life. That would be good. So what is right and wrong depends on what is good and bad. And then our theories about justice, they depend on what we think is good, bad, right, wrong. So if I were to ask you to define what is justice, you might think you could do that. But it turns out it's not as easy as you might think. This is something that was first brought up that we know of 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago in ancient Greece between Plato and Aristotle. Really, Plato brings it up, and the rest of the whole great conversation, as we call it, Alfred North Whithead called footnotes to Plato. And so there have been different answers given. I'll just mention a few, just to get them out of the way. This conversation really isn't about that. We can't actually solve that philosophical question that has been with us for all this time and is still something that's argued about. And that's because there are different answers. Some people think that what is just is what is best for the majority. And this is called utilitarianism. And the problem with that is that it means that we could keep somebody locked up in a closet and do horrible things to them as long as everybody else benefits. There's a short story about this by Ursula Keleguin called Those Who Walk Away from Amelas. And it's a great way to cure yourself of utilitarianism if that's your viewpoint. (laughs) That's how I would put it. There's the idea that you should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And that then distinguishes between that kind of consequentialism that we see in utilitarianism and this 
other idea that you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And this is what Kant said, right? And Kant also said, you should act in a way that you could will that your action be a universal maxim. In other words, what would happen if everybody else did this? That becomes the question. And then you have Aristotle who says that we have to know what is the purpose of something before we can say whether it is a good, bad something. So, you know, a, a hammer makes a terrible butter knife and vice versa. Right. So uh, you could scratch your back though with a hammer. So all these definitions could be problematized. I don't think it's immoral to scratch your back with a hammer or even a butter knife. So these are some of the ideas. And then some people say, well, we have to turn to the Bible. And of course, there are people who believe that God created everything out of nothing and therefore he can decide what's right or wrong. He's not subject to anything outside himself. As Latter-day Saints, we have a different view. Creatio ex materia implies that God is somehow subject to something outside himself. And so hopefully these few words do something to help problematize the concept of justice as something that's not easily defined. Maybe we could talk about then a new way to think about justice, maybe a different way of thinking about justice than you've had for your consideration. Yeah. So one of the things in our pre-show that we we talked about is is not wanting to necessarily try to define justice. But in avoiding that, what we can do that I think is helpful is to break down some of the common or modern ideas of justice that are prevalent in our culture, our religion, our society, and identify the problems with some of those. And so, you know, in our past musings, Chris, you and I, we tried to record this episode a couple of weeks ago. It just, it didn't work out. We kind of shelved it. But one of the things that came out of that discussion for us was that it's easier to identify injustice than to define justice. We kind of know what it doesn't look like, but it's really hard to figure out what it does look like. And so maybe that's sort of the approach we're taking here is to say, look, we don't exactly know what justice is. We can't apply an exact definition to it, but what we can do is identify problems with, you know, some of the existing models of justice that we see in the world. So as a biologist, right, by by education, by training, I often think about what are the biological origins of some of these feelings, right? Like we, we've always had anger with us. And one of the things that we theorize is that anger is essentially a response to a perceived injustice. And if we have this perceived injustice that's innate to us, we may not be able to rationalize it. But I think that, I think that it's fair to say that everybody has at least a sense. They know the emotion of what injustice is. But like you said, it, just because you can understand that feeling doesn't mean that you can explain it in a way that's, that's meaningful or, or, or useful for the community. That's a really good point. I love that we have Jeff with us as a biologist in this conversation because he gets us down to what as a philosopher I would I call metaphysics, right? The nature of reality itself has to inform how we know and what we do and therefore how we treat others. And that's why this is so problematic. A lot of people talk about what they think is justice, and it's really just an opinion. We can all have opinions about what justice means, but unless we ground these definitions metaphysically, they're just opinions. And then, of course, even those metaphysical groundings have presuppositions built into them, so there's no guarantee that we're getting it right. But we can listen, and we can hear, and we can know when we hear what is just, right? We said that, right? That we would be able to tell. Or at least be able to tell when it's not just, right? Yeah, it's more of a feeling, right, than some kind of objective understanding. One way that Jeff brought up to look at this is from the, the biological perspective. And if we 
If we look at some of those foundational concepts that inform justice, good, evil, sin, we can kind of see an evolutionary development of those as concepts, which is why it's so problematic to reach back into the Bible or scripture in general and say, well, here's the one definition of of justice, or here's the one definition of good, evil, or sin, or righteousness, or anything like that, because those definitions are tied to the history and development of society. And so that evolution is part of the arc of, of human development and individual development. So one of the things we talked about pre-show, Chris, that I, I think is an interesting concept is the level of involvement of our deity in our everyday lives is maybe a little more limited than we would assume. There's the popular idea of sin, for instance, but there's also the thought that God allows us to make these mistakes because this is how we grow and develop and understand and ultimately that development leads to some kind of exaltation, right? Is, is going through the process itself. What if God just leaves us to ourselves and in so doing kind of tacitly endorses the process more than the individual understandings that make up that process? I think I'll want you to go into that more, Riley, but let me just bring up one other thing that we want to go into. And this is something you brought on our pre-show discussion, Riley. That is that. Our concepts of justice or injustice, right? We've said that we'd be able to recognize injustice as individuals really have everything to do with how things work out for us, right? It's, it's about me. And so what the, what this leads to is that let's say I as an individual or some other, you know, if I join with a group, you know, we have a gre- I have a grievance. We have a grievance. There's an injustice that we perceive in trying to write that injustice that we perceive. We end up turning the table so that now we're on top and somebody else is going to feel like this isn't really just. And that's why the approach we want to take to this conversation is leading toward a communitarian, a universal idea of justice where everybody wins. Yeah, it it doesn't make us special at all to pursue our own idea of restoration on an individual level. Like that's not special. There's nothing Christian about the idea that I need to be made whole again because someone else wronged me. That's just a a natural law approach to justice that doesn't have any particular application to Christianity. The thing about Christianity that should make us different or unique is that we proactively pursue justice, not for ourselves, but for others. And that's difficult. It requires contemplative awareness at all times of the struggles that are created by systems and by other individuals, and then seeking out and reaching down for those that need that hand up out of the effects of that system. In, in a very real sense for me, the atonement is a perfect act of justice in that very regard, right? It's, it's God coming in and saying, I know that life isn't fair. I know that whether it's the tree that fell on your house or your neighbor that was rude to you or, or, or even your own mistakes, right? Life has not been fair. In the atonement, in, in trying to make us one, both with him, with God, and with one another— is him trying to come in and mercifully apply fairness to a situation that is inherently unfair just by the nature of living in a, in a mortal world. I don't know, what do you guys think on that? Yeah, there's some of that, that that kind of reminds me of some of the various atonement theories that, that essentially there's things we can't do for ourselves that only God can do for us. And, and it's, that, it's that sacrifice of the son that accomplishes something for us that we're unable to do. There's a couple theories of atonement that don't necessarily play out with that, and there's some that definitely correspond to that idea. 
I think of one of the earliest atonement theories that was prevalent in the early church was this idea of moral influence, where essentially Christ came to show a way not to necessarily do a thing that has, you know, some kind of lasting universal impact for us. By showing the way, he's, he's sort of providing the example for all of us to act accordingly versus accomplishing some kind of act that has universal ramifications. It's slightly different kind of nuance difference, but I think it's an important distinction to make because I think, you know, relying upon this act that accomplishes something for us that we're either not willing or unable to do ourselves is, is kind of strange to me. It's just yeah. a little bit odd for me. Yeah, you know, the theory of atonement that you bring out, Riley, is the Lucan one. And when I say Lucan, I mean it's tied to Luke, the evangelist, right? The, the apostle. And there are others, right? And so you bring out a really good point here, Riley. That is that not only are there different definitions of good, bad, right, wrong, just, unjust, and this hasn't been settled, right? These definitions haven't been settled. It's the same with the atonement. There's not only one way of thinking about the atonement and how it works, and those different ideas have been put forward at different times throughout history. From my perspective, I like watching evolution. It's, it's a lot of fun, and cultural evolution especially. And it is really fun to watch the cultures that develop these different theories of atonement. And you can see, well, what were, the, what were their needs? What were their pressing issues? What were the examples that they could pull from? And we talk about this with the Israelites in the Old Testament, like where are they going to pull their, their understanding of deity from? Probably from their neighbors, right? It's the same with the atonement. This idea of, for example, the satisfaction theory leans very heavily on understanding a feudal system and understanding how honor works with your with your feudal lord. That's not a model that works for us. And so I, I think often even just trying to comprehend it, it for me, it's very difficult because I don't live in an honor society like that. And so that's not a model that's going to work. So I have to come up with a new atonement theory or find somebody else that has but you can see that evolution and you can see humans just grasping at the divine. So Riley, that reminds me, you know, again, we, I mentioned sin, right? We said we were going to go into that. The concept of sin is not an objective one, right? It's not that we can go into the Bible, which by the way, it, part of the reason that's true is the Bible was written over hundreds of years. These are disparate texts that are brought together in this library we call a Bible. And we think of it as a book, but it's really a library. And so in the library itself, in the Bible, there are different concepts, different ideas of sin, different ideas of justice. And when we bring in the New Testament, we find different ideas still. And even among the evangelists, I mean, one of my ideas about Paul and why he looks different than, than others, and he gives a different theory than the Lucan one, is implied at least in, in his writings, is that I, I realize, well, he's talking to Gentiles, and we know that he brings in Greek philosophy in talking to Gentiles who are Greek or at least Hellenized, meaning Greekified. Hellenized is the real word for Greekified. And so this is how he can relate to them and how they can relate to him. And as a matter of fact, there, there are many similarities between the Greek, ancient Greek play by Euripides, the Bacchae, and the Gospel of John. And that's another example. We see, and we see the same thing in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the creation myths, the early, you know, history of the world, of the order, right? When I say the world, I mean the cosmos, God's order, the created order, have a lot to, in, in common with those of those who surround the authors of these stories, right? They're taking stories that are known and using them, repurposing them 
so that the stories are in a sense familiar, but they're giving them a new twist. Yeah. So you're talking about overlaps with Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian texts and those sort of other creation myths and stories. And, and so I think that the point that you're driving home for me is that we shouldn't interpret everything in scripture as coming straight from the mouth of God. These are cultures that are absorbing and adopting and overlapping their concepts of, of sin, good and evil, creation. All these things are being cobbled together in a collection of books we like to call the Bible. But if we as modern readers try to go back and find one unified field theory of whatever in the Bible, it's not going to exist. There's way too many contradictions and evolutions over time that would throw us for a loop. Certainly people can go back and just, you know, confirmation bias, quote mining, like pull out whatever they want. But to an astute reader of the Bible, a real student of scripture, that's not going to fly. They're going to be able to grab a contradiction to that just as easily. And so what starts to emerge from this picture, I think what we're getting at here is that sin as represented in the Bible has changed a lot. And so the fact that it still has divine sanction behind these various iterations of ideas of sin point to maybe a bigger question here, like where does sin originate from? The concept. Yeah, the concept of sin. Where does sin come from? Where where do these individual assignments of various actions as sin originate? Are those from communities, cultures, whatever? And then what is God's involvement in either tacitly sanctioning or ignoring or imposing his own ideas of sin on the community? How does that all happen? So it's it's difficult. It's definitely a problem. It's not something as simple as appealing to scripture. One of my favorite authors that kind of helped me understand this really well was, I, I know you guys have read Cross Vision by, by Greg Boyd, and the conversation of being able to say, you know, this isn't who God is, the, the, the God that the Israels are seeing, this violent, vengeful warrior God. This may not be who God is, but God is willing to meet them where they're at to be able to have a relationship. And I think that's kind of something that we, we might be able to abstractly understand that, that God is willing to kind of meet us where we are and be what we need them to be. The same with this idea of sin, the same with this idea of justice or, or the atonement is just like Paul is trying to find a model that works for the Greeks. God is trying to find a model that at least we can grasp onto. It's a start, right? It's getting us on the journey. But I do recognize as well that we, we say that and then modern day LDS culture, at least, is very uncomfortable with admitting that our doctrine is perhaps fallible because we are stretching for something that is frankly larger than us. Well, if I can speak to prophetology a little bit, you know, we don't have formally the concept in our religion that God dictates word for word to prophets and they take dictation, right? This is the Orthodox Muslim view of the Quran, although it's not the only possible and, and in history is not the only way it's been read, but that is the Orthodox position today, but it's not the Latter-day Saint one. So what we're looking at is we're looking at prophets, people who have an experience of God, they feel like God is speaking to them and that they are somehow obligated to share what he is saying. It's not just for them, it's for their community. And that experience has to be communicated by them in their own words. An experience, by the way, that is ineffable, which comes from the Greek meaning cannot be said, right? It can't be put into words, but they have to do what they can because whatever they experienced, they feel like they have to share it. And so they put it in words and that ultimately is going to be in their own context, right? In their own way of thinking and their own worldview. Our worldview is different. Yeah. I saw an awesome kind of explanation of the 
of the development of a new faith tradition. It always begins with sort of a visionary, ecstatic experience, and it's always an experience with God that is, as you said, ineffable. It's unable to be spoken. And that's how it always begins. And it's that ecstatic experience, that inexpressible experience that cannot be communicated, but nevertheless, it is communicated right from the get-go. It's automatically somewhat corrupted just by our own inability to express what is inexpressible. And then that corruption just continues to grow throughout the development of that new order or faith tradition. Inevitably. So what do we end up with? We end up with sort of a shadow of what once existed and what was once encouraged, meaning that direct divine experience. And it's been outsourced now to a set of people who receive it on our behalf. And it's surprising that it began you know, sort of right early on with the person who had the original experience with divine was also the same person who said, oh, but such and such person can't receive revelation for the whole church. I'm the only one that's authorized. By saying that, he immediately backpedals from what was originally experienced by himself and then taught to his followers. It was never meant to be hierarchical experience. It was always meant to be democratized. And early on in the church, you saw that there was visions and there were speaking in tongues and ecstatic experiences. And all those things started to fade away with the systematization of the new order. So it's a pattern that you see not only in our tradition, but in all traditions that things just become a little more, I guess, orderly. In that order, we lose some of the original experience. And there are typically two founders in a sense, right? There's the original founder in, in, our, in our tradition, that's Joseph Smith. And they're more open. It's come one, come all. Everybody can have these experiences. It is interesting, as you've noted, Riley, that that same person in our tradition did actually backpedal that a little bit. But then there's always the second guy, if it's going to last. There were many churches that started, and there were visions, and these manifestations were not only happening in the in the Latter-day Saint community, well, okay, first of all, not just in the Latter-day Saint community, but also in the wider Mormon community, uh, that began to be a thing eventually, right? And then you have also other people around these original saints, you know, all kinds of people. But the ones that last, they go through the second founding, which we get in our tradition from Brigham Young. Now, everybody has to be rebaptized. Everybody has to swear loyalty to Brigham Young. You have to do it his way. And it's a much more authoritarian figure. And that's typical. It's well, not he builds just, a fence. Yeah. He, he either enforces the existing teachings about a fence or he builds a new fence to protect and insulate. And so it's in that insulation, very much like the chosen, you know, the chosen people of Israel back in that time, they, they had to be almost pulled out of their world context, whether it's with Egypt or other races or tribes, they had to be pulled out of that. And so they go wandering by themselves in the desert for 40 years to sort of firm up and find their own special chosen identity. And it's in that time when you've got law of Moses development and all this stuff. So it's almost like we're building our own Mishnah, our own hedge around the law. And that's that second founding. Maybe it's just necessary. It's This isn't even necessarily a criticism. It's just an observation right? that this is the development of a faith tradition. It's an institutionalization. If it's going to last, it becomes institutionalized, and it's just inevitable because you have to say who's in, who's out, right? And the institution has to be able to decide that. And the change of name that we see from Mormon to Latter-day Saint, right? It has to do with this because there are others who are Mormons 
the people in Salt Lake, they can only say who is a Latter-day Saint and who's not a Latter-day Saint. See, that's up to them. They can't say who's Mormon. There are lots of people who are not Latter-day Saints who think of themselves as Mormon. And so this move fits into that kind of institutionalization as, that that goes on, continues. The fencing, yeah. I mean, not to be the token biology guy in the room, but I, I've got another example from biology. This Thank is, you for that. I mean, this is very common with speciesization, right? So this idea that you need a little bit of chaos to create those original mutations that spark that new thing. So Joseph Smith's experience, his theophany is, in a sense, a result of a chaotic experience, we could say. And But in order to, to stabilize that new species or the new community or the new cultural ideal, or in our case, our faith tradition, you do need to go to a place of less chaos in order to have any kind of semblance of unity. There has to be something that we have in common, right? Whether it be the standardization of the the canon that, that we say is open, but at the same time, we have our four books, right? We need something that says, this is who we are so that we can have some continuity. Oh, man, I love that example, Jeff, because the, the, the thing that it highlights is not only you know, the development of a faith tradition within a larger context of Christianity. But if you're going to create a new species, a completely new species, there has to be something unique about it. Our development, we're like, okay, what's unique about us? If anyone says the word Mormon and you do this kind of like word association exercise with people who don't know our church, what's the first things that come to mind? Well, number one, they say polygamy. Number two, they might say, oh, don't drink coffee or alcohol or, you know, smoke tobacco. Or They, they come up with the things that make us unique. That's that process of creating and defending that new species as being unique. And the same goes for President Nelson's move, as you mentioned, with getting rid of something that makes us ubiquitous in today's context, not so much back then, but like Mormon, there's a lot of other Mormon sects and and branches and whatever. And to keep our specialness, our speciesness, (laughs) we've got to be somewhat orthodox about this one aspect about calling ourselves not Mormons, but members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But bringing this full circle back to the original idea of sin, right? So how do sins become defined and then systematized and institutionalized? It's really about trying to build this fence or border around who we are, having that set our identity for us. So Riley, does this mean that, I think we said this, I don't know if you said this, but does it mean that each generation defines sin and and it doesn't really come from God. There's not an objective definition of sin. And then how does God fit into this? Let's make this really clear. If we well, can. that's a tough question. And I definitely am not going to speak from a position of authority or sure knowledge about this, but my own feeling about it is that sin, like scripture, is a community negotiation. It's created sometimes generationally, sometimes geographically, culturally, it's created in a way to serve as a buffer to the goals of that community, whatever that community is, or generation, so to speak. So if the priority of a certain group of people is X, we're going to have these certain commandments or sins associated with X that will enforce or protect or create the conditions that would produce X. And so those end up becoming the sins. You can argue against this for sure and just say the idea of sin comes from God and leave it at that. But then the problem of this is that, okay, let's take one specific example, right? We've got the temperance movement, which kind of led to our word of wisdom. So just go back to the time of Jesus, the Last Supper. What is Jesus drinking? He's drinking wine. And yet in our canon today, the word of wisdom proscribes the drinking of wine as a sin. They might not call it a sin. Maybe they call it a transgression or just, I don't know, whatever they want to call it, a word of wisdom specifically. But nevertheless, it's treated as if that's a sinful activity when in reality, it's our own cultural 
protection mechanism for keeping us special and distinct. Jesus himself drank wine. So how do we justify the fact that drinking wine is a sin? We can't because from the perspective of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that doesn't fit. So we have to see it as something else, not necessarily something bad or negative or positive or whatever, just it's something else. And I personally think it's meant to draw a hedge around our community and aid in our development by keeping us unique or special. Good stuff. Jeff, is there a a uh, biological analogy for this one? You know, I- Or do you have anything to add? I really am becoming a niche guy. I'm okay with it. So, I mean, this makes perfect sense. If you think about the development of a culture or or even a species, there has to be things that are okay. I'll use a non-human species as an example, right? You have the social hierarchies that you'll see in chimp species, right? Or, Or even one of my favorite species, orcas. They build social hierarchies. There are things that are okay in these species, and there are things that are not okay. And fun fact about orcas, they have enough culture to say that what's okay in one pod may not be okay in another pod. I'm not trying to moralize animals here, but there is biological precedence for this idea that in order to maintain our collective identity, there has to be what's okay and what's not okay. And these can be built off of experience. Like we don't eat that thing because we saw that John ate it and John died. So now there's just 100% nobody's allowed to eat that thing, right? Which might account for the prohibition of, say, pork and the law of Moses, right? That makes sense. And it could be, maybe that kind of grosses us out or we build off of it and it kind of grosses us out, right? Like cats have an aversion to cucumbers. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Could you imagine if we had an aversion to cucumbers and what the sin implication might be to that? So yeah, there is definitely a biological precedence for this idea. I love it. If I might ask a question, I guess at this point, is if if we can admit that sin is, at least in large part, us trying to solidify our, our cultural identity as a faith community, does it have theological or moral implications beyond just belonging to this tribe? What are my personal implications for this? What are my personal spiritual growth for understanding the concept of sin outside of just my faith tradition? Is it a useful concept if I don't belong to a specific faith tradition? I'm just trying to grow as a, as a spiritual person. Do you mean do the, do the same, would the same, living by the same rules, would it benefit you in the same way? Is that the question? I suppose. Or what are the benefits of trying to understand the concept of sin outside of just the faith community as, as powerful of a, uh, as an idea that is? Right. Yeah. Well, some, some of these concepts, I think, you know, when you have different cultures, you still have cultural universals. For example, it is a cultural universal that people have studied this. I, I've read it and in connection with my Hispanic marketing publications and whatnot, every culture, it is a cultural universal that parents tickle their children. All parents and all cultures do this. So there, I think, you know, that's partially an answer, right, Jeff, that some of the things that, that we call sin in our culture, are going to be universally applicable as sin. You know, we, we're going to find that it's really not good for the community if people kill other people in the community. And that's any human community. And that's because the nature of a conversation about morality, again, depends on life, right? Life is the standard of value in this conversation. You don't have a conversation about ethics with people who aren't living. And also rationality, right? We don't think the lion is bad because it ate the gazelle. That's just what lions do. Lions don't act on rationality as far as we know. They act on instinct. And so that's just what they do. We act on reason. You know, we have rationality. We have reason above and beyond the animals as we understand it. 
this is coming into question. The epistemology of animals is something that's, you know, I, I've actually got, gotten curious about it myself. I haven't read anything yet, but I've got a couple of books, you know, about what dogs think. They seem to know things. They know when you're going to come home before they can actually see, hear, smell, taste, touch you. So what's going on? I don't know. Maybe they're better uh, attuned to how we're all one in some sense, right? And they have access to something that we don't have access to. But we decide based on, and we act based on reason. And so those are kind of requirements for moral choices is to have choice and to have reason. Otherwise, it's not a conversation for you. Just to piggyback on that, I, I love the idea about the more universal a sin is accepted as such, the more applicability it has to actually you know, affecting your life in one way or the other. That's an idea that to me makes a lot of sense. And it actually, it brings Jesus back into the equation. And, and one of the things that he was asked was, you know, which of all the commandments is the greatest commandment? And he said, well, the greatest commandment is to love God. The second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said something interesting, upon these hang all the law and the prophets. It's almost as if all the other things that we've invented to lead us to these two great commandments are meant to get us there. But to the extent that they don't, maybe they don't matter a whole lot. You know, Jesus also spent a lot of time in the Beatitudes talking about that whole process of emptying and going through the morning and being in that place of meekness. Part of that, I think, has to be shedding the identity part that comes from being special and having these observances that are different from other people. Yeah, I get that. You know, another answer to your question, Jeff, would be, is, so is there a benefit to me if I'm not a Latter-day Saint and I would follow the word of wisdom? Like we could put the question that way and see if there's a, an answer. And, you know, I think, I think we can say that there, if there is a health benefit promise, it could be because of the promise, the covenant relationship, but it could be more objective. You know, this just, this is actually objectively bad for you as a person, but we don't think our evangelical neighbors who drink are immoral because they drink coffee. They don't have any, covenant not to. And it seems, as Riley's pointed out, that not doing it has more to do with setting ourselves apart, which is clearly what the Israelites were doing. And I think it's what we're doing. We're setting ourselves apart in some sense. And it really becomes a conversation starter oftentimes, right? Oftentimes, let me offer you some coffee or tea. Oh, I don't drink coffee or tea. Why not? And then you get to talk about your religion. And it's it's just, it's interesting how that works. Okay. So we don't do easy answers around here. I hope this doesn't sound like an easy answer, but just kind of trying to synthesize these ideas. So it seems like going back to this idea of justice and the atonement, right? So so justice is making things right. The atonement is making us one, both communally, one with one another and one with God. And so those universals, those sins that we can all say, like murdering, right, that are these are universally not okay. They are the things that prevent us from being one. They are the things that get in the way from our ability to be at one with ourselves, one with one another, or at one with God, at whatever way that might be. In that sense, it could be said that simple things like shame, in a sense, prevent us from being at one with one another because we isolate ourselves, at, at one with ourselves, at one with God, because, again, we're, we're shutting everything off. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting possible definition of sin that might be worth contemplating. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, one of the things that can happen is if you, as an answer to you shut yourself off because of shame, is this idea that your sins will be shouted from the rooftop. And now this becomes a mercy, 
right? This is something that God is doing as a mercy, the same reason he asked Cain, where's your brother? He already knows the answer. It's not for him to find out that he's asking. It's for Cain to voice his trauma. And so when we are shutting ourselves out in that way, kind of hiding in the closet, and by the way, whatever's, whatever we're stuffing in the closet ends up running our lives, it can, as Morgan Aldous put it in an episode we just recorded with him, it can actually possess you right? Anything that you externalize, right? That's actually really supposed to be a part of you can end up then taking over you from the outside. It's interesting to note that in the Quran, there is no word. And so, because there is no pre-Islamic term for good or bad or right or wrong, these terms are not existent in pre-Islamic Arabic. So what you get in the Quran is ma'ruf for known, what is known, and munkar, what is literally disputed. The same word can mean enemy. And by the way, the Hebrew term is cognate with munkar, the, the one that's used. And these terms are translated differently in different contexts in the Bible. So you have that term, a cognate term in, in Hebrew to the one I gave in Arabic. And yet when it shows up, it's translated differently. And this is something we talked about before we recorded, right, Riley, in our pre-show discussion. The idea that one of the reasons you can't go to the Bible for answers, it's, we already talked about the contradictory answers that are there, but there's also translation, right? It, you see the same term translated in different ways, which means the culture of the translator is coming into play in interpreting the text and putting it in our own cultural context. And that's always the case with translation. That's right. The Hebrew word for justice since that's kind of the topic we're, we're aiming at here, is is translated a couple ways. One way it's it's translated is that retributive idea of sin and punishment, but it also is used to describe the opposite side, which is restoration and reconciliation. And so how can it be both, right? It's like, it's the same word. It should be translated one way or the other, but there you go. So interpretation. And those were two different theories of justice implied in those two different translations of the same Hebrew word. Just as an aside here real quick, if you don't mind, I, I, you got me thinking about, in this idea of justice, one of my favorite quotes, it's, to be known but not loved is terrifying. To be loved but not known cannot change us, but to be known and loved can transform us. And so when we're talking about this idea of what it might mean to have a justice based on relationships, I'm partial to, not entirely influenced by, but partial to this atonement theory that perhaps Alma is giving us, that God is, through the atonement, coming to know us perfectly and know us in our flaws, our weaknesses, our sicknesses. He already loves us, but because he knows us and loves us, he can help transform us. And that, that's part of that restorative concept of justice that, I mean, Riley, I'm sure you can go into that a little bit better than I could. Well, one of the things that I witnessed as I kind of did a, a dive on justice in in the scriptures is that it oftentimes is accompanied by righteousness. So it'll say justice and righteousness or just and righteous. Again, that's because what is just depends on what's right. As I said earlier, right? So to be just, it has to be righteous. Well, and it draws the the point together of if these are somewhat equivalent, which they, they're set up as parallels and parallelisms and in Hebrew scriptures are meant to kind of draw out understandings about a term that might be in relationship to another term. The parallel between righteousness and justice, if we understand righteousness as a relational concept, meaning we're in right relationship with our God, justice is something similar to that, where we're in right relationship either to God or ourselves or the community. 
And so it's almost as if God is saying, you know, perfect justice is coming to fully be known, to know yourself, and hence to know God. It's, it's a restoration of that relationship and understanding. Here's another formulation not meant to be contradictory, but just to be a little more nuanced, right? So if you think that God gets to decide what's right or wrong, then ethics, right, how I should act as an individual when there's nobody else to consider really depends on what God wants me to do. Now, of course, God could be telling me what to do, and it is the right thing to do, but not because he made it up, but because he understands it, and I don't understand it. And like any parent, like as any father, as we do to our children, he's explaining it to me. Son, this is how things work. And that's sort of the Latter-day Saint position, right? That God is somehow subject to something outside himself, and that when he gives you a law, it's not of his own invention, but of his own discovery. Sort of the natural law approach. Yeah, it's this idea that as a scientist, I can calculate whether or not somebody's going to break their bone when they fall off of a ladder. I can use the math of how much do they weigh, how high up are they, what is the angle that they're hitting the ground at, a few numbers about the bones that I might already know. That's a law. We can understand that. The natural consequence of falling off the ladder is that the bone may break. God isn't punishing the person that fell off the ladder. Those are just the natural consequences of his actions. How often is that the case with things that we might consider to be moral issues? These are just the consequences, and therefore maybe God's law is more, hey, let's help you avoid these consequences that I've discovered are already there. And that comes back to this idea of what justice means. Justice might then be God trying to help us repair from the mistakes that we've made or that others have made that have natural consequences. Justice is making right something that is just broken. Yeah, the question still then is, are we paying something back? And if so, who are we paying? Are we satisfying somebody's demands? If so, whose demands? They could be our own demands only. They could be justice's demands. We talk about it that way, but what is that? Something outside of God? They could be God's demands. Some people think of it that way. There are different answers or different possibilities. We want to talk about, I think, Riley and Jeff, the implications of these different ways of looking at it. And maybe there's this retributive justice idea that's maybe more prevalent and better known. And we want to introduce this other way of thinking about justice that's restorational. Both can be found in the Bible. They are contradictory. Riley, you've already sort of pointed us at one example from the Bible. Let me grab a scripture that I think speaks to this parallel idea or this, this equivalence of justice and righteousness. And if we can arrive somewhat at common understanding of righteousness being, you know, a right relationship with God, then maybe this will make more sense. But it says in, in Psalm 106, three, happy are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Observe justice and do righteousness are set up as parallel. So observing justice would mean what? It would mean seeking out that right relationship. And right from the get-go, we, we can see the problem with our modern understanding of retributive justice in the context of this Bible verse. And again, like I said earlier, you can take Bible verses to mean whatever you want, and there's plenty of contradictions throughout. I'm just picking an example of one that somewhat supports the idea that unless you seek reconciliation and restoration, it's sort of out of line with this relational understanding of righteousness. I might add that a good reason why retributive justice is so popular is it's the easier of the two. If you live in a society where, you know, somebody steals your car and wrecks it, but they don't have the ability to, to pay you back for that, I need to be compensated. 
right? I have been wronged and I need to be set right again. Maybe we don't have the ability to restore. And so we're stuck with, well, we can punish. And that's the only option that we feel like we have to us. And, and I think that sometimes people aren't aware that there are more options to them. There are more situations in which you'll find the opportunity to restore than might initially see. But I do understand the ease of saying, well, if they've done something wrong. I'm just going to punish them for it. That's how I'm going to help them feel like justice is done. The thing I love about you bringing up this point is it really drives home what we think we mean about restoring. First of all, there's some implication there. One of the things it implies is that in restorative justice, in order for that to really be fulfilled, we have to be made whole, right? We're being made whole according to the things that we lost in this occurrence, whatever it is, whether it's a car wreck or someone stole from us or whatever. It assumes that the thing that we lost belonged to us, that it was ours. And that's how these things go. There are always assumptions baked into our answers. Right. In a model of LDS theology, we're supposed to understand this slightly differently, that God owns all things. He gives us stewardship over them. We do the best we can with it. And then we're held to account for our stewardship over God's stuff, not our stuff. And so what would a restorative model look like if we fully understood that those things weren't ours to begin with? I'm leaving that open for people to think about and contemplate a little bit. I think I understand that the restoration would be to God, the reconciliation between both the aggrieved victim and the perpetrator, that reconciliation between them might be how we restore God to his fullness. I I don't know. I don't know the answer. Now, we did say in the beginning that we weren't going to try to come to conclusions necessarily, right? Right. Questions. As Americans and as Latter-day Saints in particular, we really are enamored with answers. But there's a lot of value to be gained from having questions. Is it Elihu and, and Job that he's kind of written in as this character that helps Job see that what does your righteousness or your disobedience really do to God? You know, which, you know, it seems kind of out of place, I feel like, in, in a lot of the Old Testament, this idea that hmm, maybe me committing this sin doesn't hurt God's honor, doesn't offend God in any way. He's more concerned about the relationship, right? That was the theophany of Julian of Norwich, this person who grew up with an idea of a wrathful, vengeful, angry God who had to be appeased, and then realizing, oh, he wants to have what she refers to as a wanting, harping back to this idea of atonement, which is a powerful English word, that God's whole intent, whether it be my sin against my neighbor, quote-unquote sin, right, my, my ran over his mailbox or something, or or my direct sin against God, it, it all comes back to what are we doing to to heal that relationship? What are we doing to, to come back together? Is that the aspect of justice that we're looking for? And that really points to the, the restorative aspect that's spoken of in the scriptures in many places where it talks about helping the, the downtrodden, the needy, the oppressed, the fatherless, the widows. These are the people who are either by circumstance or by system, disadvantaged in some way. And it's he's, he's essentially leaving it up to us to act upon the things that we observe. So here's another one from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, act with justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed. And then it goes on to talk about those who are robbed as being the fatherless, the widows. Not just people who are robbed of their possessions, but people who are either circumstantially or systemically robbed in some way. We have to be proactive and aware of those circumstances and systems and seek to, in various ways, lift them back up and equalize or reconcile those people to ourselves and to God. 
Riley, when you said proactive, it reminded me again of our conversation with Morgan Aldis in our last episode. And I'd like to ask you, you had an insight in that episode as to proactive repentance. Does that idea fit into this conversation? Yeah, I think the actual word I used with Morgan was preemptive repentance, but it's the same idea. It's taking initiative towards seeing within ourselves the capacity for either good or evil or love or hatred or whatever, seeing the capacity for that and then acting upon that capacity before you even act out those desires, I guess. Possibilities, right? For yeah, as yeah. a human being. I think, you know, it's important to to point out that as you mentioned in that last episode, that you may not have a temptation. And that may just be because of where you were born geographically, or maybe in terms of your social uh, status, you may not ever have to face the choice that Jean Valjean had to face, right? And in, in Les Mis, right? Whether he's going to steal or whether his family's going to go hungry. But you can act preemptively or proactively before you have to face that choice. And you may never face it, but you realize I too am capable, if in that circumstance, of making that choice. And by the way, the point that an author like Victor Hugo is trying to make with that story, and that we see also in, in the great Russian novels that you mentioned in, the, in our last episode, Riley, is that things aren't so black and white. These ideas of sin that we come up with to put a hedge around our community, so to speak, as we've been talking about it, aren't objective and that maybe there's an injustice here at the level of the community that needs to be addressed. You know, there are these punishments in Islamic law that are called uh, had punishments that, for example, cutting off hands. By the way, cutting off hands does not necessarily mean severing a hand. There's an example in, in Islamic history where the brother of the caliph is stealing from the treasury and he's exiled. Well, now his hand has been cut off from the treasury. He cannot reach in there anymore because he's in exile. But these kind of punishments, however you interpret them, actually don't apply in times of famine. So somebody like Jean Valjean would not have faced a legal consequence for stealing to eat in a time of famine. I, I think that's a great point. It, it, it just highlights for me the, the changing nature of sin. I mean, we go from as you mentioned in the last episode, the lex talionis of eye for an eye to this more modern conception of, okay, well, we can apply, I don't know, years in a dungeon or years in a cell to a certain crime that's been committed. And the equivalences have changed completely because the severity of the sins changes as a negotiation over time, depending on your culture, geography, whatever. And, and so there isn't consistency. And so ultimately we have to look for what is it that we can do to help transform the individual and help them to be reconciled to the community and the community be reconciled to God? What actions can we take that would be restorative that also discourage bad behavior? You know, because you kind of have to have both. I've got a, a quote here from D.B. Hart. There is no such thing as perfect freedom in this life or perfect understanding and it is sheer nonsense to suggest that we possess limitless or unqualified liberty. Therefore, we are incapable of contracting a limitless or unqualified guilt. There are always extenuating circumstances. Always. Always. And this is, this is not a vote for determinism, but it is a vote against what some have called metaphysical libertarianism, this idea that we have 100% free will to act in, in every situation. Frankly, we don't. We're influenced by our genes. 
we're influenced by our cultures, we're influenced by the Jean Valjean example is perfect, we're, we're influenced by the needs of maybe our, our poverty. And to be able to understand that in ourselves allows us, I think, to, to be more aware of it in the broader sense of the justice that our communities deserve, right? Looking for the justice for the poor, the downtrodden, the fatherless, understanding that there but for the grace of God go I, right? Yes, indeed. And that, going back to the theory of the atonement that says that Jesus is a model, when you see Jesus suffering, you realize there but for the grace of God go I. And it causes you to repent and to change your outlook, right? That's what we mean by repent, to see things differently, to realize that could be me. And that guy didn't even do anything wrong. And I've done wrong. You're inspired to repent and you change your outlook. And, and he's a model in that way that shows you the way to find that kind of peace. But right along with our last episode again, repentance then takes on a, a, a larger meaning. It's less about just the things that I have done. That's part of it. But it, it's really more about recognizing not only my capacity within me to do good or evil, but also the advantage or disadvantage that other people are growing up with or surrounded with. I mean, we can we can judge a Somalian pirate all day long and say how evil that is and whatnot until we're in their village and they're just struggling to feed their family. And they're like, well, I can steal this from some first world country's shipment going across our strait or whatever. And a big corporation loses something. Yeah. And no one will notice the difference. I mean, we're talking about maybe a millionth of a penny adjustment in the price of this item because it was a stolen good on the high seas and I get to feed my family. Okay. Sign me up for that one. You know? So it's really easy for us to judge that situation without having any responsibility for changing the circumstances that caused that action. So what you're suggesting is that if I want to be proactive about causing justice or at least contributing to justice, that I need to think about what can I do to resolve those issues that don't have anything to do with me doing or not doing something. Well, maybe they do have more to do with not doing something. That's the question. It's not about what did I do wrong, but what didn't I do right? What could I do more? Yeah, I always have so much respect for those charitable organizations and individuals that are pursuing kind of the biggest problems, like clean water. If everyone was on an equal footing in terms of clean water, how much better would the overall world be? Like just one thing, clean water. What about healthcare or just the very, very basic needs of life? If those were taken care of, and this is something that's taught to missionaries. I've, I've heard this several times within the church. They say, before you can teach someone the gospel, you got to take care of their basic needs. Otherwise, they have no moral imperative to listen to your small incremental changes you're asking them to make about whether it's word of wisdom or various other prescriptions for morality or, or ethical behavior. Until you can address the circumstances that would cause them to act immorally, until you address those, then you can't expect people's behavior to change. This goes back to the idea of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And and I'm I'll be the first to say it's not a perfect system, but there is a lot of validity to the idea that until your basic needs are met, you're not going to get anywhere near self-actualization. You're not going to be having a theophany with God if you can't even imagine how you're going to make it to the end of the day. There are limitations. And like you said, this is what justice means, right? It's one of the ways that we are invited into the atonement to labor with Christ. Is I can't remember who said it, maybe you know, but a quote that I'm partial to is this idea that maybe the reason that God allows us to do a lot of his work is to endear us to one another. 
an act of the atonement of making us all one is God saying, there are some problems in the world. What are you doing to address it? What are you doing to lift one another, to build that heavenly family? It's hard. The world is big and there are a lot of problems. What, what little one can you address? Like you said, maybe it's water. Yeah, you know, you bringing in the, the hierarchy of needs that Maslow set out reminds me again of Islamic law because the question of, of jurisprudence, of what is the purpose of the law, what's called maqasid al-sharia, the purpose of the law, the purpose of the sharia, is then it helps you to decide, again, someone stole bread is not enough information. The question is, what has higher value, somebody's property or somebody's life? And the Islamic jurisprudence answer is that life is the highest value. It has a value over and above property. And there are systemic ways we can address this. I mean, one of them in the Old Testament that I love is this tradition that among Israel, they would only cultivate and reap from a certain percentage of their fields. And they would leave the rest fallow or they would allow things to grow that they would not harvest so that those were given to foreigners or the poor, or whomever came through that field, they had access to that excess production. And they left that alone. It didn't belong to them. It belonged to those people. And so that was one way of like systemically saying, we recognize the existence of these other brothers and sisters or sons and daughters of God. We recognize them. And we acknowledge that they have a right to exist just like I do. And whereas I might be blessed with this large field, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God, and he's going to feed all his children through this method. Here's another example from my personal experience living in Syria, an Islamic country. I was surprised. No one taught me this. It's something I discovered in my experience of living there. I was living in the most conservative Muslim quarter of the old city of Damascus. And then when I stepped outside one morning, I was wondering what to do with my trash. You just put the bag outside your door and somebody will come by and take it. But I also saw next to the bags of trash, not in the bags of trash, next to the bags of trash, bread. If you have bread that you cannot eat, you don't throw it in the trash. You put it where somebody who really needs something to eat or even the birds of the air can eat it. It would be wrong to throw it away. And this, everybody does this. They just put the bread outside and not in the trash. And it's such a simple thing, such a small thing, but simple things, right? These small things can make a big difference. Love that. You know, wrapping up, guys, because I think we could go on and on. I don't think we're going to solve the issues. We're not going to answer the questions, but hopefully we've raised some really good questions and given you some answers to consider as possibilities. Thank you for being with us, Jeff. We're happy to be here. Riley, it's always great to be with you for Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado. I'm Riley Risto. I'm Jeff Patterson.